Welcome to Rainbow Pridecast, episode 11. And I'm your host, Danielle Dupuy, and I use the pronouns she, her, hers. Uh, co-hosting with me today is... Uma Ribeiro, and I use the pronouns she, her. And joining us today is Justin Tyndall, Director of Education and Global Programming with the It Gets Better Project. Welcome, Justin. Thank you. I'm really excited to be here. Yeah, we're excited to have you. Um, now, Justin, I know the It Gets Better project has been in existence for a decade now, um, but a lot of people aren't familiar with it. Can you just give us a brief overview for people who haven't heard of it before? Sure. Um, we did. We the, the organization was launched in 2010, so we're actually hitting our 10-year anniversary this year, um, which is really, really exciting for us and, and has encourage us to kind of look back on, on our history. Um, a lot of people know the organization from where we started, but don't necessarily know we, where we are today. There's always a piece that someone is, is missing. So happy to give you kind of a, a quick version of how we got started and, and where we're at today. Um, we did not start as, with, uh, the, someone did not have the idea of starting an organization called It Gets Better. Um, our founders, Dan Savage and Terry Miller, um, uh, decided that they wanted to share their story with young people. And they wanted to use what at the time was a relatively new platform, YouTube. <laughs> um, and they thought, well, at the time, again, in 2010, um, it was really hard for especially gay men to be able to go into schools or to community centers or into church groups and talk about being gay with young people. So they said, well, is there a way that maybe we can get the story out there in a way that we don't have to ask anybody's permission, that youth don't have to go through a gatekeeper to discover our story and to learn more about our experiences as queer people. So like I said, they turned to a platform like YouTube and they said, um, let's just talk straight into the camera and just tell our story um, and kind of some of the experiences we had and show that we made it through these really struggling times in our lives, that we made it through bullying in our adolescence, through struggles with coming out in, in our teens and in our 20s, and kind of where we are at today. Um, and that sounds very normal, right? That's We're so used to it now in 2020 of going onto YouTube and seeing YouTubers speaking directly at the camera, telling a story or just walking us through an experience. But this was something that just hadn't been done before in 2010. Um, but Dan and Terry, they did it. They put their video out there and they had a goal. They said, obviously our experience as two queer, uh, but white men, um, is not the experience of everybody. So they were like, maybe we can get some of our friends, some people that we know in the community, um, other kind of influential people to tell their stories. And we can create this like nice little collection of stories. And their goal was, um, they said initially 100 would be great, 200 would be a dream. If they could get 200 story video stories that they could put on YouTube and that young people everywhere could access, maybe, just maybe, it could be a great resource for those LGBTQ youth who are just looking to see a future that was possible, right? Again, in 2010, there were so few representations of queer people in the media, successful queer people in, in, in life in general. And especially if you're from a rural town or if you're from just a very marginalized community, you didn't have access to those stories. So that was their hope is that like 
this collection of, of 100 to 200 stories could be that, could be this place where young people could go and see a future that was possible for them. Things went a little bit differently than they had planned. Mm -hmm. um, since that day, since, since September, I think it was 10th, uh, uh, 2010, um, we haven't just collected 100, we haven't just collected 200, we've actually collected over 70,000 It Gets Better videos from people all over the globe. Um, and these have been celebrities, these have been everyday people, um, these have been influencers and YouTubers as well. Um, this has been politicians and major community leaders. Um, it's even been from a, a, an incredible group of allies who just want to share messages of support and, and tell the story of their family members or their friends or their, their loved ones. Um, and that, that the lot, a big bulk of those 70,000 videos actually came in the first year or two after uh, Dan and Terry uploaded their video to YouTube. It was one of the first things to really go viral. Um, and their video just sparked an online storytelling campaign that the world had really never seen, especially one specifically for LGBTQ youth. Um, and so that's why they, Dan and Terry, they turned to some friends and they said, oh, wow, like there's something here. Um, clearly, we've sparked something um, that we weren't expecting, but there is a need not only for young people to access the stories of their elders or the stories of people that have come before them, but there's also this really big need for LGBTQ people that have survived some really challenging experiences to tell their stories. There's something cathartic there. And so they said, this needs to be more than just a one-time campaign or a collection of stories that lives on YouTube and that is forgotten. So that's when they decided, like I said, with a group of their friends to actually form a nonprofit organization. And that is how the It Gets Better project got started. Um, since that day, we, especially in the early years, our main goal was just to keep that collection growing, make it get as big as possible so that mm -hmm. every kid literally everywhere could find a story from someone who has experienced things like they've experienced them, that has experienced life like they've experienced it. That comes from a community that they're familiar with, um, and that's that was the that was really the momentum of the organization for the first few years. That's changed a bit because people aren't necessarily making um, those videos like they once did. They're not just putting themselves out there and telling their story, especially everyday people. Mm -hmm. So that's why in the past few years, especially, we've really gotten into the production side ourselves. We've teamed up with some amazing studios and companies and storytellers and filmmakers to get It Gets Better stories um, of all types and fashions um, out there into the world. Um, we, as an organization, because again, we started on YouTube, we've always been very fortunate to have a, a large footprint on social media. A lot of people have, of course, seen our videos. They've seen our content. They just might not know it's coming from the It Gets Better project or, or realize it. Um, but we're behind a lot of great stories that people have seen and that have been inspired by over the years. Um, and that's what we do. We're, we're still in the storytelling business. The mission of the organization is to uplift, empower, and connect LGBTQ youth around the globe, primarily through storytelling. And that's, that's, the, that's the history of the organization in a nutshell. There's obviously so much more. We have some amazing programs today. Um, but that's really where we got started and, and where we are focused and leading into still today. That's awesome. I mean, it's it's amazing to see how far it's come in, in the last decade. 
Um, I have a story to tell you uh, of my own as we okay. get in. Um, but uh, that brings us to our next question. Uh, Uma, go ahead. Did you want to ask? Um, yeah. So if I'm correct, you learned about the It's Get- It Gets Better project when you watched a video featuring students from your college, uh, Brigham Young. Can you share a little bit about what it felt like when you watched that video and how did that impact you? Yeah, I'd be, I'd be happy to tell it. I can't promise I won't get emotional because it's still a very Aww. important part of my life and my journey and my experience. Um, but yeah, I, in, in 2010, when Dan and Terry uploaded their video, I was in graduate school at Brigham Young University, which is um, in Utah. It's a it's a Mormon uh, university. Um, it's 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 like the official uh, university of the Mormon church, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Um, so I grew up Mormon, obviously. I, my, I grew up from a family with a long Mormon history. Some of the first converts to the Mormon church back when the church was first established in, in the 1830s. Um, and so I just came from a, a community. I'm, I'm originally from Mesa, Arizona. Um, which is basically Utah outside of Utah. <laughs> it is, uh, there's a large and very um, vocal and a very strong Mormon community there in kind of the suburbs of Phoenix. Um, so I grew up just surrounded by um, a, a religion and a culture that wasn't, especially at that time, um, even in 2010, that just wasn't necessarily open to the idea um, of people being queer at all um, to the extent that growing up as a kid and especially as a, as a teenager, when I, when I was understanding who I was, um, there was just no visibility. There was, there was Will and Grace, but I, I remember watching Will and Grace and thinking, but that's not me. Like that's, that's two grown men living in New York who have these fabulous lives. That's, that's not a reality that is even possible for me. So I was, closeted and and I I was closeted because I thought I was the only one I thought I was completely alone um growing up and and even when I went off to to college there at at Brigham Young University so I was in graduate school um at BYU in 2010 when Dan Ontario's video first came out and I had um I still remember her uh, a girl named Jessica who was in the graduate program and it's this is, um, sorry, this is, I didn't, I haven't even thought about Jessica in years. Um, but Jessica, I think is one of those like little angels that the universe sends you that like maybe like saw me and understood me more than I could at that time myself. And so she shared the video with me and just was like, look at this amazing video that these guys put out. And that, people are responding to all over the globe. Like people are, are responding with their own stories and this huge collection is going viral and it's really amazing. And she shared it with me and I remember watching it. And of course, like it brought me to tears. It was amazing to see. It was just amazing to see two gay men telling their story and feeling like I, I felt seen. Um, of course, it was still way too early for me to come out. I wasn't ready for it to necessarily be the story for me. Um, but I just remember it. It just it hit me so hard to see that video. And of course, I started sharing it. And I was sharing it as an ally is what I was I was saying at the time and, and was happy to, to help spread the message. But again, it, it wasn't 
yet for me. So I kind of just put it on the back burner. Um, but I always kind of stayed with with a, a a finger on the pulse, you could say, of, of the campaign um, and of the organization that was born out of it. Um, wasn't until two years later, in 2012, when I had finished graduate school and I'd moved to the Dominican Republic to work for a, a small nonprofit organization um, in in this small town on the northern coast, Cabarete. And it was the first time in my life where I was not around a Mormon community. It, always, always. I, I, I lived lots of different places um, all over the country and, and in the world at that point in my life. Um, but I'd always been intimately connected with with the Mormon community. And so this was the first time that I wasn't. And it was the first time that I started actually really really asking myself big questions about my life, about who I was, and especially about who I wanted to be. Um, and it was the, I was there for about six months and it was one of the most ex incredible experiences of my life because I learned so much about myself and I learned so much about just how the world works differently outside of the community that I grew up in. Mm -hmm. And but I also was very, very alone when I was there because I was <clears throat> grappling with these like identity questions. Um, and one day I was online, um, just kind of like surfing the internet. And all of a sudden I saw it gets better video from BYU. And at first I just didn't think it was possible. I was just like, there's a mistake here. It's like a different, it gets better. It's not this campaign of, of queer stories that I've seen for the past two years. But I opened the video on YouTube and lo and behold, it was a group of students um, from who were at BYU who had formed the, the, the university's first ever GSA, which at the time could have very well gotten these, these students kicked out of the university. And I had literally left the, the, the school four months earlier when I saw this video, like it was, in just four short months, somehow these queer students found each other and decided to make this video. And I think it's one of the longer It Gets Better videos. I can't remember exactly. I think it's something like 14 minutes. Um, and it's a compilation. So it's not just one person. It was whoever did it. They did a really fantastic job. It still is, is such a high quality video. They clearly had someone come in with a camera to record their stories and then they, I think they published each one of the person's stories individually, but they kind of put them into this compilation um, that just showed like a dozen different people's experiences and like literally was shot on campus. So I was seeing like the library and the quad and like the staircase that led up to, to, to campus and like all of these different places that I knew intimately, that I knew very, I, I had lived for years on that campus. And so to see them, this group of students talking about being queer and talking about loving themselves and about talking about who they wanted to be and, and how they saw themselves in the world. It just, it blew me away. I can't even tell you. I think I can't even tell you how many times I watched that video, at least a hundred. I, I can, I, I can guess that um, I just watched the video over and over and over again. And it was incredible because it wasn't that much different from any other It Gets video, Better video. It was, again, just 
regular everyday people telling their story and talking about their experiences. But it was the first video that was 100% me. Like these, these people that were talking about being queer, they grew up in the same communities. They were going to the same university. Like they knew my experience 100%. And while I had been so scared and so alone, they found each other and they were so brave and so courageous to come out and make that video and to put it out there to the world. Again, knowing it very well could get them um, expelled from school. It could get the GSA shut down. It could, it could lead to a lot of really big problems for them. And they did it anyway. Yeah, that's... Oh my gosh, I have to take a minute here because you, you, you had me getting some tears here, Justin, I'll be honest. Um, yeah, thank you so much for sharing that. And I just want to say that, you know, myself and so many people in my generation, you know, owe it to that bravery and owe it to the It Gets Better project, um, our ability to really, you know, show our sexuality. Um the differences that I've even seen in the last five years are just amazing. And the, the freedom that, you know, I have to express myself, it just, we owe it a lot. We owe it a lot to you and to the, it gets better project. And just to these people who, you know, had to be brave. Absolutely. I mean, I owe my entire life to them. I've never, I don't know these, I didn't know the students, even though I'd just been there. I, I, I never got to connect with other queer students at BYU but I mean, I think <laughs> I think if I met any of them from that video today, it would be like meeting the biggest celebrity, you know, that person that you just have looked up to for years. Like, I don't even know how I would re- react because genuinely them telling their story changed my world. And it was probably by like the 95th time that I watched the video that I think I, I made a decision. I, I literally, I was sitting there watching it and I thought, I have to I have to change everything. I'm I'm I have to change my life. I can't see this video and not like change my my journey. And I made a decision right then and there that when I moved back to the US, I was going to come out. I was going to come out to my family and to my friends and to the potential coworkers. I had a job lined up that was waiting for me back in the states when when I was done there in the Dominican Republic. And so I just made a decision right then and there that my life was going to be different going back. And I wasn't going to go back into a closet or I wasn't going to go back to, to living a life that really wasn't mine. And so I, um, yeah, that was the decision I made. And I am so, so happy that that video was there to really hold my hand and get me to that point to where I can make that sort that type of decision. It also, I didn't realize it at the time because I went into a teaching job when I got back to the United States in San Antonio, Texas, but it also inspired me to get really involved with a bigger community. It made me realize how many other queer kids are there who were closeted like me, who were just waiting for a video, who were just waiting for somebody who was already out, somebody who already knew who they were. to come and find them, to, to hug them and to tell them their story and to walk them into a new life. And I just, again, I didn't necessarily realize it then, but I made that decision that I wanted to 
be a part of something like that. And I wanted to give back and do something for queer youth so that they didn't have to stay closeted as long as I did, that they didn't have to feel alone for as long as I did. Um, and yeah, I, I spent two years working in San Antonio, moved here to Los Angeles, completely unprepared to have a job or anything, and was doing some searching online. And lo and behold, the It Gets Better project was hiring. Um, and it felt like a dream come true. I mean, it, it's just, it seemed like your whole life, you know, you've been kind of like led to this, uh, to, in this direction. Um, so obviously those, those two videos had such an impact on you, um, that not only did it change your trajectory for coming out at the age that you did and recognizing who you were, but now you've, you know, you found, you know, your calling. In, in a way. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I saw the video when I was 24. I, I was fully out to, to family and stuff by, by 25 and, and kind of had gone into that journey and, and was living who I was. And then at 27, I started working for the It Gets Better Project. And I'd been with the organization for almost six years, um, which is pretty unheard of, right? That a lot of, a lot of millennials don't stay with a company or an organization for, for six years. Um, mm-hmm. And there's lots of reasons for that. Um, and there's, and it's, there's been opportunities to leave and go elsewhere. Um, and maybe, of course, that will probably happen one day. But this, working for this organization, it's, it's a joy every single day. It's a joy to see the stories that we help put out there. It's a joy to see the young people that are impacted by them the way that I was. It's just such a fulfilling experience. And I wish that everybody could have that type of experience, that they can work in something that, that brings them joy every single day and that fulfills them. And that has, has had such a pivotal part in, in their development and their growth as, as a person. Um, I feel very, very, very fortunate. And I don't foresee myself leaving the organization anytime soon because it's, it's home for me. That's, and I think that's what, you know, everybody hopes for is to kind of find a place that we, you know, that we love things that we love to do and working with people that we enjoy being around. So that's, um, definitely, definitely a positive. Um, now you recorded, you recorded your own, it gets better project video, didn't you? (laughs) There, I've never done an official, like, I'm going to sit down and just publish this, this video. Um, I have on a number of occasions because the It Gets Better Project, again, part of our mission is to um, uplift, empower, and connect LGBT youth around the globe. Um, the way we do that is we work with uh, an affiliate network, a global affiliate network, um, where essentially we give um, small organizations or, or different groups in different countries licenses to use our name, our logo, our platform, all of the whole shebang of what the It Gets Better Project is, um, so that they can tell the stories of their community. Um, I mean, I, I don't know what it's like to be an LGBTQ person in Brazil. So it wouldn't be right for me to tell their stories and, and to dictate their messaging out to LGBTQ youth there. So that's why we work with these local teams and we give them support and we give them training, we give them tools, um, anything that we can to help them be successful 
um, at telling stories in their country like like we do here. Um, and so in a number of occasions, I've gone to, to visit and, and work with some of the, the affiliate teams that we have. Um, and I think that there's been, I think at least once when I was in, in Mexico and then once when I was uh, in Spain, the teams there asked me to sit down and record a short uh, story as well, um, where you'll probably, I mean, those ones are in Spanish. Um, uh, I so, tried to watch one, but I don't speak Spanish. So. <laughs> well, I'm glad because, but I'm sure you caught that I was just as emotional in those videos. Whenever I, I'm, someone asks me to tell my like story, like my It Gets Better story, I get very emotional, um, as you can tell. Uh, but that's okay. It's part of who I am at this point. Um, but uh, yeah, I, I shared my story with, with those two affiliate teams. So yes, they, it does live out there, but I've never um, officially done one for the, the It Gets Better project. Um, that is something that we, as an organization, like if you go to our website and if you dig through our social media channels, you're really not going to find, you're going to find very little information about our staff or by our, of our board of directors or the people kind of behind the, the camera. Um, because we're so in love and obsessed with telling the stories of our community, um, mm -hmm. that I think sometimes we forget that our stories are part of that. Um, so we, we're really good at telling other people's stories. We're not always the best at telling our own, but um, maybe one day there will be an opportunity to sit down and do um, uh, uh, like a high poly produced version of, of all of our stories, those of us that work for the organization. Um, but that day hasn't, hasn't quite come yet. I guess I'm going to backtrack just a little bit. I had some other questions, but um, I kind of wanted to backtrack just a minute. Um, now you talked a lot about, you know, uh, growing up in a conservative, um, you know, very religious community, um, how how did that change um, when you kind of returned from uh, Dominican Republic? How did that change for you um, when you came out to your family? It, where has I mean, is I guess what I'm I guess what I'm trying to ask is just for my own, um, you know, for my own story, just to give you a little background. I was I was raised in a very extremely religious uh, Catholic household. And, um, you know, being Catholic and uh, coming out as, as LGBTQ is, uh, is uh, you know, doesn't mix very well. Um, so mm -hmm. it was very difficult. Um, so I was just kind of curious as to how your family, um, you know, kind of came to terms with it. Um, yeah. Were they like supportive immediately or did it take a while or are they still working on it? obviously it depends on the member of the family. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah. There, I, I personally, for my well being, I came out. Um, I, I said like when I came back from the Dominican Republic, I was going to change my life. Well, I'm originally from Arizona. So when I moved back from the Dominican Republic, I went straight to Texas. So I wasn't, um, oh, yeah. I wasn't right there with my family, which was for me a saving grace because I wanted to come out to, to friends and kind of non-threatening figures in my life. Um, first to kind of, you know, test the waters a little bit, um, which I did. And it went uh, really well for the most part. There was really accepting friends and colleagues and people there in Texas. And so it really helped me build up my courage and, and my ability to come out to my family. But I did it in pieces because I, I wanted to come out to them in person. Um, and I didn't get to see them all at, at one time. And, and for me personally, that would have been just maybe too overwhelming um, to come out to to more than one person at a time in my family. I was, I was, I was afraid of them 
kind of teaming up or ganging up against me. I, I didn't know what the, the outcome was going to be, um, mm-hmm. which I don't think any of us ever know what the outcome is going to be when we come out to someone. So we plan. Sometimes I think we go into it, we plan for the best case scenario. And we don't always think ahead to the worst case scenario. And, but I did, I, I definitely, I definitely thought like, you know, yeah, my family, maybe they can be understanding, maybe they can be accepting, maybe they'll have questions, but they, they'll be great. But they also could be, could respond really poorly. And I needed to be prepared for that. So that's why I kind of came out first to friends and colleagues to, to prepare for that moment. And so I came out to a sister first who I, I knew was going to, to take it well. Um, like I said, I'm a pretty emotional person when telling my story. So I, I was crying and then she just started like sobbing and I, it scared me. It scared me that I had let her down or I just was no longer the person that she once thought I was. And um, I will never forget hearing her as she was crying. She said, I'm not crying because I'm sad. I'm, I'm crying because I'm so afraid that the world is not going to love you too. And I just, I will never forget that she didn't make that moment about her or about her feelings per se. She made it about, I want my brother to be who he is. I want him to be safe and understood and accepted by the world. And she was just so scared that that might not be the, I don't know, the the, the path that I, I would go down. And so she was just, she was great. And, and that's, I was so glad that I, I came out to her. Um, then I came out to my, my parents and that was, uh, I first came out to my mom and it went great at first. <laughs> she, wow. she was very understanding. She was like, well, of course I still love you. She even brought up, she's a cosmetologist and she's like, I've known plenty of gay people. Like, of course I'm going to still love you. And I thought, like, I was on cloud nine. Um, And then about a week later, I think it sunk in. And she allowed it to kind of run through her mind through a religious lens. And so I think when I came out to her first, she thought of it just as a mother and just as someone, an everyday person, right? And that she was going to love her son no matter what. But I think over the course of that week, she started viewing me through the eyes of the the religion that she she holds dear and the, and the faith that that she she has and it was like putting on different glasses all of a sudden i think she just saw me differently and so she called me um in a panic she was she was she was very afraid um i i distinctly remember that phone call of her calling and saying you are, of course, you you are you are sinning. You're you're going to lose favor in the eyes of God. Um, I distinctly remember her getting very frightened and saying, "Does this mean you're going to get AIDS and that you're going to die?" Um, I think she was just very scared and she didn't know what to do. And all her mind over that course of that week had done was go to worst case scenario, um, and that caused a huge rift. I think that damaged our relationship that still isn't quite back to where it once was. And we've been working to build back from that over the years. Um, but she's grown a lot and she, 
now I think absolutely regrets some of the things that she said and sees me very differently. Though she is still very much, um, a, she's a very active member of her church and, and believes very strongly in the, the kind of tenets of, of, of their faith. And that causes problems from time to time, but um, it's something that we, I don't know, I, I, we're working on it. And I think things are, are okay. Um, other members of my family, things went, um, some went well, some we, I came out to them. We've never spoken about it again since. Um, I, I do have a, a sister that I no longer speak to and it's not specifically because I came out, but because of come some of the, the, the ways that we realize that we think about the world differently and we see the world very differently from each other. Um, and, but, but, coming out was kind of one of the straws that started to, to break the camel's back, so to speak. Um, so the reactions have been good. There, uh, some reactions have been good. Some have been really challenging. Some are continuing to, to be figured out over time. Um, as for my personal relationship with Mormonism, with, with the faith of, of my parents and of my community, I still have a tremendous amount of, of respect for um, very important aspects of the Mormon church. Mormons are absolutely obsessed with the concept of family. Um, mm-hmm. They believe in this beautiful concept that families are forever. Oh, and that, I, I know. I, I have a friend that's Mormon. I, I just, I just love the, the idea of eternity. It's big to them. It's absolutely big. They don't, they don't marry till death do us part. They marry for time and all eternity. They don't believe that you, you, you die and you go back you go to a heaven where you, you're just one of many, they, that you go there with your family and that you continue to live in this family unit for the eternities, like you said. And it's, it's such a beautiful concept. Um, and so there's so many things that I still really respect. Mormons are, are very service-oriented. And so there are tenets of, of the faith that I hold dear in my heart. And I, will, I still have such respect for the church and will defend it, especially when people get it wrong, when they try to say things about the church or, or, or kind of distort what the church stand for, stands for. At the same time, I will be the first one to point out the church's flaws and to say, this is where you need to do better, particularly when it comes to, to LGBTQ members, uh, members of color, women. I, the church has a long way to go. And that creates conflict in my family that they... They're like, believe what you want, but don't, don't criticize the church or don't point a finger. And I, I view it differently. I don't, I'm not pointing a finger at the church to say, to turn people away from it or to disparage it. I point a finger to say, you need to do better. You need to do better because the way you did things hurt me. It hurt me for years and it hurt so many people like me. And you continue to hurt these young people who don't know who they are and you're not giving them the space and the freedom to figure it out. And so, like I said, that creates conflict that I'm, I'm, I'm able or willing to, to look at the church, judge it for its actions and, and point out where it has room to grow. Um, but I, it's, 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 it's an, it's an interesting relationship. I, I wouldn't at this point, I wouldn't consider myself Mormon. Um, I, I wouldn't, necessarily consider myself um a a person of god um 
I do, however, believe very strongly in the importance of, of, of love, the importance of family, the importance of giving back to the world, of making the world a better place. Um, I believe in having faith in others and I believe in, in forgiveness and, and respect and, and the beauty of the world and so many things that are inherent in religiosity. Um, but I, I wouldn't, I don't practice the faith the way that my family would like me to. Um, and so it's a little, it's a, it's a struggle. It's a, it's definitely a struggle because there, the church has evolved since I came out. The church has now is willing to acknowledge that people are born the way that they are, that, that some people are born gay. Some people are, 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 are born trans. I think they're willing to at least acknowledge that. You can openly now identify as uh, an LGBTQ person and still be a member of the church. You won't be excommunicated. You won't get kicked out of BYU. However, they're still very strict that just because you are that way or that you feel that way doesn't mean it's okay for you to act according to those feelings. And so essentially they say, sure, you may be gay, but that doesn't mean that you ever need to have a relationship with someone of the same gender or that you um, express your gender the way you feel that it is inside. Um, and so in a way, I, I think for most queer people and, and myself, we interpret that as, well, I can be gay, but you're asking me to be alone. You're asking me to not experience intimacy. You're asking me. That's almost even more damaging in, in some ways. It is. It is really damaging because when the church talks so much about families and about how families can be together forever. And then you're told you can't have one because you obviously you're not going to form a family with someone of, of a different gender if that's not right for you, but you're not allowed to form a family with someone of the same gender because that would get you excommunicated from the church. So you're caught in this limbo of not, of, of really being completely and utterly alone. And I don't, I don't agree with that. And I, and I'm not okay with that kind of life sentence, honestly, that they pass down to queer members of the church. And there are some queer people who've decided to stay. They want to change the church from within, or they want to wait until the church changes on its own. And I just couldn't, I, I couldn't do that. I, I, if there is a God, and if he does love me or she loves me, then the way that the Bible says, right? If, if they really love with this huge amount of, of mercy and patience and forgiveness, then if I choose to, to find love in my life, to live the way that feels right for me and it was wrong, then they'll forgive me. They'll, they'll, they'll find a way to extend their mercy to me. But I, I can't live the only life I'm, I really know I will have with a certainty, this one, and not live it the most authentically I can. Um, and so that, that puts me at odds with, with the church and, and with a lot of members. And so I keep my distance, but I, like I said, I still have a lot of love and, and understanding for the, for the faith and for the religion as a whole. Um, and, I'm, and 
you know, going on all of your service projects that you've done uh, throughout your life, I mean, obviously they had a, the church had a big impact on you in kind of fostering that, that service and that giving back, um, you know, from the get-go and as you continue to do with uh, working for It Gets Better. Um, I think that, you know, personally, you know, one of the, a lot of the things I guess about being raised in the Catholic church is that stuck with me was um, not passing judgment on others. And Mm -hmm. I think that when we talk about, you know, going to church and, and learning the teachings of our various religions and not passing judgment and, you know, you're supposed to be living by those principles. And yet at the same time, it feels an awful lot like passing judgment when somebody is telling you how to live. Um, if you don't live to the, uh, the standard of, of the particular religion, you know? Absolutely. Um, so that to me is unsettling. Um, and I just remember, you know, being in college, I had, I had come out of the closet briefly in high school and went back into the, into the closet in college. And I remember, you know, another student asking Mm. me, I was approached several times, like, well, are you a lesbian and denying myself? And I felt like, Mm. I felt like Judas, you know, there when, when, uh, you know, when the cock crowed three times and three times he denied Jesus. And I felt like I denied myself, you know, I denied that truth in myself. Um, and I needed to stop doing that. Um, so, you know, I, I completely understand and feel for you. And I, uh, you know, I wish we had been at the same school growing up. We could have supported each other. (laughs) Oh, I, I think about that all the time. There, there have been, um, quite a few. I mean, there was, quite a few people at BYU, people from high school who grew up in the same Mormon church that I did, who have since come out. Um, we got denied that opportunity to open up to each other and really find each other and, and be that support system for each other. We we thought we were so alone that we didn't see the queerness in each other. And that is a piece that I, I'm, I, I'm, I'm I grapple with, but I, I don't know if I'll ever be able to forgive my community and, and the culture and, and, and the religion as a whole on that piece for denying me that chance to connect with those other kids who were just like me. And I had no idea. Um, all of us were so alone and, and we didn't need to be. Um, and it was simply because people were afraid that maybe us being who we are was a threat to them or something. I, I don't know. It just, it's a, it's a bewildering piece. And I know that there's a lot of queer youth out there who continue to experience that, who continue to experience this, this loneliness and this isolation simply because people are afraid of who they really are. And it's, it's, it's bizarre and it's, it's, it's bewildering. Well, I can, I can only hope that you know, we just continue to see progress. And I think, you know, every small step is a small step, you know? Yeah. I, I couldn't agree more. I think the Harvey Milk is, is often known, um, not only, of course, for being one of the first queer politicians to openly queer politicians to serve in, in public office in the United States, um, but also known for for some of his popular refrains about giving hope, and he a big part of his thing was was begging more and more queer people to come out, 
And I know that that's a controversial thing to ask, especially at that time, right? It was, how controversial it was to say like, risk everything, risk your life, risk your livelihood, risk your families, risk your friends for the sake of coming out. Um, but there is something to be said for the, 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 the strength in numbers that there was, there was a threshold that essentially we hit here in the country where there was enough of us coming out, living our lives openly and proudly, where now there's very few people, I think, in this country who don't at least know somebody who's queer. Mm-hmm. And when you know someone on a personal level, it changes. It changes your whole perspective. It changes your entire understanding of, of this threat that you thought it would be. And so I, I am so grateful for all the people that were out and proud before me. Um, and I really do. I, I think there's just something beautiful about um, about us being out <laughs> and being there for each other. And, and I think that has made so much progress. And I, I at least feel like at least queer kids today know that there's, there's people like them out there. They may not be right there in their community. They may still need to leave. They may still need to, they still may need, still need to face challenges, but at least they know that there are people like them out there. And that was denied to so many of us, like, especially before the, the onset of the, the internet. Yeah, it, it, it really, it really was. Um, and, uh, you know, my, my wife and I met through, uh, like an online dating site. I don't know how else we would have met otherwise, you know? Um, That's beautiful. Yeah. It sounds so corny, but you know, it, it, uh, it worked. Um, so now your role as a teacher, you, you worked for um, Teach America. Was it Teach America? Um, teach yes. America. Well, Teach for America, they essentially recruit you okay. to be a teacher, but then you're eventually hired by your local school district. So ah, okay. I was hired by um, in, in, to work for uh, an elementary school in San Antonio, Texas. Um, and then... Yeah. When you, when you ha- having that teaching experience, has that kind of helped you with your current role um, and kind of like getting, you know, LGBTQ plus media into schools? Oh, absolutely. Um, when I started teaching in San Antonio in 2012, it was absolutely still legal um, in the state of Texas. And I believe it still is today um, statewide for you to be fired simply for being gay. And I, I don't think people always understand that, that there still to this day, there's no federal law protecting people across the country from being fired for, for who they are. And, and yes, it sounds like it couldn't happen, but it's absolutely a possibility that my principal could have walked into my classroom at any moment and said, I'm firing you because you're gay. And that would have been 100% legal in 2012. Thankfully... By 2013, the, the, the San Antonio City Council um, passed a local ordinance saying that um, basically a non-discrimination ordinance that extended um, employment and housing protections to people regardless of their sexual orientation and or gender identity. Um, and so really, it wasn't until my second year of teaching that I, I realized like, oh, I can be out and they cannot fire me for this. <laughs> um, so 
the first year, even though I was out to colleagues, I was out to my principal and, and thank God she, she was at least understanding and accepting of that. But I was not out to my students because if a, if a parent had come and said, Mr. T, which is what my students called me, Mr. T is gay and is talking about being gay with my, my kids and I'm not okay with that, they could have, like I said, they could have outright fired me. Um, but by 2013, that wasn't the case. So my second year of teaching, I did come out to my students. And of course, they're fourth graders. They're very young. And there are portions of, of San Antonio, even though it's, it's a fairly liberal place, it's also, a, it's also a very Catholic place. And it's a place where there are some conservative pockets. And so for some kids at fourth grade, it still was a little confusing. It was hard to understand. Um, but uh, it was such an important piece of my coming out to be able to be open and honest with my students. Um, so yeah, that, that teaching experience has completely shaped my um, role here at the It Gets Better Project and how I do my job because um, I know what it's like to be a closeted teacher. I know what it's like to be an out and open teacher. Um, and during the entire experience of teaching, what it's like to not have resources and not know how to navigate conversations with your students, not, not know how to, when you're, when you're teaching fourth grade social studies, which is all about Texas history, and not one queer person ever appears in a several hundred year history, that is mind boggling. And so I knew what it felt like to be a teacher that, sure, by the second year I was out, but I did not know, I didn't know how to navigate those conversations with my students. I didn't know how to, to change the curriculum to, to meet their needs. Um, I, I made it up as I went. And so in my role now, I, I don't want any teacher to be in that position. I want every teacher to be equipped with at least some resource or some materials that can help them navigate the experiences of coming out to their students, or if they're an ally teacher of how to, to have conversations about sexual orientation, gender identity, and expression with their students. I think that's great. Yeah, um, definitely. I wish, I wish more people would uh, take advantage of that. Um, and I guess Uma, you and I are going to have to make sure that we put that out there for our own school system to hopefully uh, incorporate some of these resources as well. Yeah, I think it's um, it's just so necessary for teachers to have these resources and know that they can talk about these things without being penalized. Mm -hmm. And it's just, you know, I wish that, you know, my parents have always been very accepting, but there were never like specific conversations about the LGBTQ plus community. Mm -hmm. And I don't think it was until middle school that I really started you know, questioning my own sexuality and actually learning about the community as a whole. And it just right. shocked me that, you know, this was only a few years ago. It just shocks mm -hmm. me. And I think that there really does need to be more curriculum and just more conversations within the school, because I would have loved to, you know, know about the community when I was in fourth grade. So I think that that's just, it's great that mm -hmm. you, that you were able to share that um, with your class. You know, the thing that people don't understand is that when you are part of the LGBTQ plus community, basically every time you have a new class or every time you meet somebody new, you're like coming out of the closet all over again, mm -hmm. you know? So it's like this constant coming out because people make the assumption, they assume, you know, that you're just, you know, a straight cisgendered person. Mm -hmm. Um, and unless you tell them otherwise, mm -hmm. that's what the assumption is going to be. Mm -hmm. Um, 
you know, and I think we kind of need to, to break those uh, assumptions about people. Um, right. You know, just because you're a white female doesn't mean you're going to be married to a white male, you know? Right. Um, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's very, that part is, is frustrating. Um, For sure. But, you know, my own kids, um, my, I have three children and they um, obviously have two moms and to them, that's very normal. So, when, you know, why wouldn't there be some sort of education in school talking about different kinds of families when that is what my kids experience is, you know, because right. um, we have to have the conversation. Yeah. We have to have the conversation and educate our children about that. You know, this isn't the only kind of family that people have. You know, some people just have one one mom or some people have a mom and a dad or some people right. have two dads, you know. Um, and so to us, it's very normal to talk about different types of families and relationships. And I'll never forget, you know, a lot of times people think, oh, it's a, um, you know, that's too hard for kids to understand. And I'll never forget picking up my uh, oldest daughter. Um, she was then uh, two at the time from daycare. And um, another mom shared with me that um, from the daycare that when she picked up her son, her son said to her, did you know that Riley has two moms? And she said, yes, I did know that, you know, and what, you know, what do you think about that? And he said to his mom, isn't she lucky? Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, that's what kids are thinking, you know, <laughs> and I feel like we put all this negativity and stigma around it and don't have that conversation. Yeah. So um, sorry, I just got, I got off topic. I just wanted to interject. No, um, no. I think that's now it's my turn to get a little emotional. <laughs> I think that's really important. And I, I think, I think there are people that are allies of the community out there, but who still say, well, well why, why do we need to talk about this in schools? Right? Like stick to the math and the science and, and the English and, and whatnot. I, and I, I understand, I, I get where they're coming from in that, but like, if you don't, if you don't understand what led people to, to being the people they are, like if you don't understand that Alan Turing as a queer man um, helped develop the, the code that, that ended essentially World War II, um, but if you don't understand his experience as a queer man and as a scientist together, then you really don't understand him as, as a full person, right? If you, if you learn about like, if you're sitting in class as a queer student and you hear about um, President Roosevelt and then you hear about his wife, Eleanor Roosevelt, you're hearing a story that you've heard a thousand million times over. You're, you're, you're being told once again about a heterosexual relationship, never being told that Eleanor Roosevelt was actually a queer icon and was someone who had a beautiful relationship um, with this, with this woman in her life that completely shaped who she was and the inspirational things that she was able to accomplish as, as first lady. And so I just feel like when, when you, when you tell people like those things just aren't for school, you're missing half the story. You're missing so much about what makes the world great. And, and people aren't just scientists and that's it, or they're not just political leaders and that's it. There's so much more than that. And it's, it, it is valuable to, 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 to learn about their identities um, and, and learn about what, what made them so impactful. Um, beyond that, um, GLSEN puts out research every year and they've made it very clear for the last few that 
Um, there are, are four things that are absolutely necessary to make a school a safe and inclusive place for LGBTQ youth. First is supportive educators. Second mm-hmm. is LGBTQ inclusive curriculum. Third is inclusive and supportive policies, like allowing kids to use the bathrooms that they would like or allowing them to dress what they would like at prom, those sorts of policies. Um, mm-hmm. supportive, and then the last one is supportive, mm-hmm. supportive student clubs like gender and sexuality alliances or, or GSAs. And when those things exist on a campus, they educators see their queer students thrive. And when those things are lacking, queer students across the board have poor educational outcomes. They're, they're less hopeful about the future. They're less likely to go to college. They're more likely to think about self-harm. Um, so if we're not talking about queer identities, if we're not allowing teachers to be out and open, if we're not allowing curriculum to explore queer identities, then basically we're saying then queer kids are going to struggle and they're going to suffer. And, and that's not okay in my, in my view. No, it's not. I mean, there really needs to be, you know, this is part of our education. And if, if we don't get the full stories about queer icons, then we're missing Mm -hmm. out on our education. And it's just, it's, it's very necessary to have these Well, stories. you're lucky in Maryland. Maryland is one of five states, and California's included that where I live. Um, but Maryland is one of five states in the U.S. that does have a mandate on the books, like on the, on, on the law, <laughs> written in law, that K through 12 history and social studies curriculum in the state include references to the contributions of the LGBTQ community to our world today. So by law, teachers in in Maryland who teach especially history and social studies should already be including um, LGBTQ history into their curriculum. The problem is, is that these mandates usually have come without enforcement clauses. So essentially, at the end of the day, it's like, well, this is a mandate, but if a school district chooses not to do it, or if a teacher says, I'm not doing that, there's no punishment. There's, there's no, there's no, nothing's going to happen to them. There's no fine. There's no um, uh, um, denial of funding or anything if a school district chooses to, to, to not follow that law. So I think those laws that do exist um, here in the, in California, it's called the Fair Education Act. I think they're fantastic. I think they're a very, very, very important first step, at least making it known that the state is encouraging schools to do that. And I think that's great for, for, for schools that take the law seriously and are absolutely willing to adopt those recommendations. But it's not enough. We, I think as a community, this is somewhere where we, we haven't done enough, where we need to be pushing states harder to not only put in these mandates, but to also make them enforceable. Um, because literally the success of their queer students depend on it. Definitely. And also, you know, just to put this out there, but as, as an educator, what I can tell you is a lot of times they'll come out with these, you know, these mandates and yet then they're, they provide no support. So, you know, it sounds yeah. great. Mm-hmm. And yes, let's, let's incorporate this into the curriculum, but now you have to make sure that you have people at the curriculum level that know what they're, you know, mm-hmm. know how to, where do we incorporate this? And uh, how, how do we incorporate LGBTQ plus history into this lesson? Um, you know, 
who who made a valuable contribution that we can include, you know, in this topic or this subject. And I think mm-hmm. that because when we were in school, you know, I never learned any about any, you know, queer icons or LGBTQ plus history. I didn't know what Stonewall was. Um, right. If you said Stonewall, I'd think Stonewall Jackson, you know, like <laughs> I, had, I had no idea. Um, you know, so I feel like we're, we have a huge gap in our education that we as adults don't know that, you know, I think we need help, you know, and assistance mm-hmm. in, you know, from like experts that can, can bring that in and sure. how to do that. And also, you know, having somebody that's out um, at that level that would feel comfortable kind of delivering that message too. Cause I feel mm-hmm. like if you are, you know, being a spokesperson for LGBTQ plus rights, you should also be part of that community as well. Um, so, you know, I think that there's, we're talking about steps here. So I feel like we're, we're making steps, we're making progress. You know, we just had our, our first rainbow conference and uh, neighboring County and Montgomery County, uh, Maryland just got, uh, you know, approved for uh, an LGBTQ plus uh, actual an entire course um, on LGBTQ plus uh, topics. Uh, so, you know, we're making progress. We're going to get there. Good. And it gets better, you know, it gets better. <laughs> <laughs> and and that's what I want you and everybody who, who listens to the podcast to know, like you are not alone in the struggle and that there are organizations like the It Gets Better Project who hear your pleas for, for help. Um, of course, as just one organization and a relatively small one, despite our, our online footprint, we are a small organization and we're based way over here in California. We can't solve all of those issues. We, we, unfortunately, I wish I could, but I can't walk it over into the the uh, state capitol building in Maryland and demand that these laws be put on the books. Yeah. But we can make sure that, like you said, if this is something that teachers want to do and they're just needing some resources, that's where we can step in as an organization. So on our website, if you go to itgetsbetter.org/education or even just slash edu. Um, We're providing materials and resources, anything that we can to make it somewhat easier for for you. And one of the easiest ways for us to do that is with our stories, right? If you're you're looking to tell LGBTQ history, well, we got the video stories for that. (laughs) We've We've got the people's stories from the video campaign. Some of the pieces that we've helped produce have touched on some really beautiful pieces of LGBTQ history. So definitely our resources are there and available to you and, and please take advantage of them and share them. Um, I think there's a lot of, again, ally teachers out there who, yeah, they're supportive of the queer community. They might not even know that that mandate exists in Maryland and that they should be incorporating LGBTQ stories into their curriculum. So they're just going about their day, not knowing, and maybe it just takes one other teacher or one other administrator or one other faculty member to say, Hey, are you teaching queer history in your classroom? If not, well, why don't you look at the It Gets Better Project and see some of the educational materials they have available and you can you can incorporate it in. Um, mm-hmm. And I see so many educators being willing to do that. They just don't know, one, that it's a possibility or two, um, that the resources are there for them. Yeah, definitely we'll pass along the information for sure. 
Um, so one last, one last thing, cause we're going to have to wrap up. Um, we've kept you far too long, but I love talking to you. It's been great. Listening I think I you. spoke far too, too much. So no, I apologize for that. I love it. I'm keeping it all. Um, so I'm going to have a little fangirl moment for a second. Um, <laughs> okay. so back in, back in 2011, um, I was at an American library association conference in new Orleans and I got to hear, uh, Dan Savage speak. Uh, he oh. was the key- he was the keynote speaker there at the time. Oh, that's great. Yeah. And so like, I was like, totally, I probably was completely embarrassing when I met him. Um, and like, Oh, you know, can you sign my books? Um, so have you read any of his books, by the way? Um, I believe I read them all. Yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> awesome. Well, I just loved, I loved mm. the commitment and the kid, I think were my, my two favorites. Um, the commitment but, was another game changer. Absolutely. Yes. Not up there with his video, but pretty close. I love that book so much. And I love mm-hmm. the kid so much. Oh my gosh. Mm-hmm. I just absolutely adore him and his writing, but, um, have you met him? That's what I really want to know. <laughs> uh, so people ask this all the time because of course, Dan and, and, and his husband, Terry are our founders, but they're not nonprofit people. <laughs> so they founded the organization and then they put it in the hands of, of people that are, are more versed in, in nonprofit uh, management than, than they are. Um, and they've really allowed it to continue that way. Um, mm-hmm. they, they founded it. They, they support it to this day. Every once in a while, Dan will do, do an interview or, or some type of appearance on, on the organization's behalf. But Dan also has, as you probably know, um, a controversial personality where he says things that aren't always uh, uh, comfortable for a lot of people. And he, he does not want the organization to be negative impact, impact, negative, negatively impacted by that. And so him and, him and Terry keep uh, a reasonable distance from the organization. So I have met him very briefly on two different occasions. And then by briefly, I mean literally maybe 15 seconds, got a handshake, and that was, and then, and then he kept going. Um, so haven't gotten the full fan experience that I would like to, especially because I'm like you, my, my, my fan fandom, I don't know. My fandom extends beyond me working for the organization that like his, his books, same, they, they impacted me in a way that, that I will ever, I will always be grateful for. And so maybe one day I'll get that, that, that experience, but just haven't had it yet. Yeah. Okay. That's, that's what I want. But he's a very friendly person. He's, he's oh, very, yeah. he's very nice. He's very, he's very cordial and, um, and, and Terry as well. I've, I've had the chance to, to meet him a few oh. times. They're just, they're, they're, they're great people. And, and again, there's a lot of maybe controversy around them. And they've said, especially Dan has maybe said some, some dumb things in the past. Um, but I, I, at least I've seen them as people that, that have a desire to grow and have a mm-hmm. desire to learn and to understand. And I think truly like when they, they when they made their, it gets better video, um, at their core, they, they want to do what's right and they want to, they want to do what's good for, for the queer community. And, um, yeah, I, I definitely, I will definitely always admire them for, for their contributions to, to where the queer community is today, um, to be quite honest. So what advice would you give to LGBTQ plus youth struggling to come out? And what do you suggest teachers should do to make their classrooms more LGBTQ plus friendly? Those are two great questions. The first one, and this is just something that is, is 
stuck in my mind ever since people have asked me to tell my coming out story is for LGBT youth, particularly those of you that want to come out to someone, this is my recommendation. I recommend that you think about the person that you know well that you want to come out to and then think about five different scenarios. One scenario being the literally worst outcome, right? Where they, they get angry or if it's a parent, they kick you out of their home or if it's someone that could potentially be, be violent. I want you to think of that scenario and put it down at the bottom of the list. Then I want you to think about the absolute best scenario, like what the best reaction can do, hugs and love and acceptance and all of that great stuff. And then think of like a couple of scenarios in between that are somewhere in the spectrum between the two. And I really want you to take, I really want queer youth to take the time to think about each one and get to a point where they say, you know, I'm ready to come out to this person regardless of what happens, regardless of which five scenarios end up being true. I am ready. Meaning that again, if it's the worst case scenario, I have, I have somewhere to go. I have resources there. I have people to protect me. I have an ally that I can, I can rely on to the other end where it's like, I am ready to party and paint the house in rainbows. Right. <laughs> like, um, I think that's, I think that's the best advice that I can give is just prepare yourself and always be, always take the, the, the route that's, that's best for you. And that is safe for you. And that is good for you. And if you do that, then you'll, you'll never go wrong. Um, just, just make sure that you, as you're coming out, you find resources and support and help. Um, even if you don't need it, knowing that it was there will, will be so important. So that's a piece of advice that I have for, for queer youth. As for educators wanting to know what they can do to make their classrooms more inclusive and, and safe places, we actually just posted a, a published an article on our website. You can actually find it if you go to itgetsbetter.org slash edu or slash education. Um, it's like the third tile down. It says um, uh, how to make your digital classroom more LGBTQ friendly, because a lot of teachers are obviously teaching digitally these days. Um, for some, that means they're not, sometimes the resources that they were able to provide in person are no longer there, but the LGBT youth are still just as much in need. So if you go to that, that landing page, you can find a whole list of different ideas and resources that we've provided to hopefully make your digital classrooms a little bit more LGBTQ friendly and inclusive. Um, one of the fun ways that we came up with is Zoom backgrounds, right? Like if... Um, if a teacher is hosting a class via Zoom um, and they know they have queer kids in the class, or even if they don't know if there are any queer kids in the class, if they show up and their Zoom background is this rainbow and it has these like accepting phrases and gestures, what that can mean for an LGBTQ person or LGBTQ student sitting at home, especially if they're sitting in a, a home that's not very identity affirming, to be able to look online and know, wow, my teacher at least is there for me. They support me. They see me and they accept who I am. It could make the world of difference. And I think it's the little things that we do every day um, as, as allies and as supportive community members that make the difference in the long run. It doesn't always need to be big, bold gestures. Sometimes it's, it's the yeah. little things. Absolutely. Yeah, thank, well, thank you so much for... Um for talking to us today and of for course. your stories and your time. Um, that was awesome. I really enjoyed that. Yeah, that um, was great advice too. So thank you. 
of course. Sorry, I, I can be long-winded. And of course, when I get emotional, it drags it out. So I, I apologize. No, I loved it. I loved it. I, you know, I wish I, I wish I could give you a hug. Um, <laughs> a big virtual hug. Yeah, a big virtual hug. So um, I, I hope that this is just um, that we will be chatting again in the future. Um, yes. And yes. I hope that you'll come back for the next Rainbow Conference as well. I hope yeah. so too. That would be great. Yeah. And um, thank you so much for being on the Pridecast and um, we'll be in touch. Okay. Thank you so much. The music featured at the start and end of our podcast is Work by Kevin McLeod from Incompetech.com. Licensed under Creative Commons by Attribution 4.0 license.